Israel is a kingdom in chaos. In recent weeks, we've seen King David abusing his royal power through adultery and then through a big cover-up that involved murder. And last week, we saw David's family descending into chaos. Amnon, the heir to David's throne, raped his sister Tamar. And two years later, Amnon was killed by his brother Absalom. That was an act of vengeance for what Amnon did to Tamar. We ended last week with the aftermath of that murder. When we left things, David and everybody around him were weeping and wailing. And Absalom, who has now become next in line for the throne, Absalom fled to Geshur to stay with his grandparents. Israel is a kingdom in chaos. And into that chaos steps Joab. Joab is the commander of Israel's army. And he's a man totally committed to Israel. He's a patriot, and he can't bear to see Israel in chaos. He can't bear to see David's dynasty under threat. And so Joab is determined to fix things. 2 Samuel chapter 14 shows us Joab doing his very best to save Israel. This is Joab's attempt to put things right. So if you haven't already opened your Bible there, you'll find 2 Samuel 14 on page 317, and in the large print Bibles, 488. 2 Samuel 14, and we'll read the whole chapter. Joab, son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you are in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honor. And she said, help me, your majesty. The king asked her, what is troubling you? She said, I am a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field, and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Then we will get rid of the heir as well. They would have put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. The king said to the woman, go home and I will issue an order on your behalf. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, Let my lord the king pardon me and my family, and let the king and his throne be without guilt. The king replied, 
If anyone says anything to you, bring them to me and they will not bother you again. She said, then let the king invoke the Lord his God to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son shall not be destroyed. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Then the woman said, let your servant speak a word to my Lord the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. And now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I will speak to the king. Perhaps he will grant his servant's request. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. And now your servant says, May the word of my lord the king secure my inheritance. For my lord the king is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the Lord your God be with you. Then the king said to the woman, Don't keep from me the answer to what I'm going to ask you. Let my lord the king speak, the woman said. The king asked, Isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered, As surely as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything my lord the king says. Yes, it was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this, and he put all these words into the mouth of your servant. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. My Lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. The king said to Joab, Very well, I will do it. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honor, and he blessed the king. Joab said, Today your servant knows that he has found favor in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, He must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. Absalom lived for two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, Look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house and he said to him, Why have your servant set my field on fire? 
Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, Come here so that I can send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. This is God's word. And it shows us what happens when we rely on human wisdom to try and fix problems that are caused by human sin. What happens is, human wisdom ends up trying to fix the problem while ignoring the real problem. And that only brings superficial success. We've already noticed Joab is the driving force behind this chapter. And to understand why Joab even gets involved, we need to understand the situation at the start of the chapter. First, we need to go back one verse to the very end of chapter 13. After telling us that Absalom fled to Geshur, where he stayed for three years, chapter 13, verse 39 says in the NIV, And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. That implies David wanted to bring Absalom back because he was over the grief of losing Amnon. But in fact, the verse is much more ambiguous than that. In other places, that word go refers to going out for war. So longing to go to Absalom could mean longing to march out for battle against Absalom. And the second part of the verse could be translated, for he was sorry for Amnon's death. In other words, David may be longing here not to embrace Absalom, but to bring Absalom to justice. So which is it? Well, I think the lack of clarity is intentional. I think it's telling us David isn't clear himself what he really longs to do. We find this same uncertainty in the first verse of chapter 14. The text says the king's heart longed for Absalom. Or simply, the king's heart was on Absalom. In other words, he was thinking about him. Or it could even be the king's heart was against Absalom. Those are all possible translations. And again, I think that ambiguity is intentional. Probably because David himself is in turmoil. And in fact, that makes the best sense of this chapter as a whole. David is conflicted about Absalom. For three years, he makes no effort at all to try and bring him back and to reinstate him. But he doesn't try to bring him to justice either. And when he reluctantly allows Absalom back under pressure from Joab, 
David refuses to even see Absalom for a further two years. All the evidence says David doesn't know whether he's coming or going. He doesn't know what to do. And Joab cannot live with that kind of uncertainty. He wants the situation to be resolved. David might be conflicted, but Joab has no doubts. He knows what needs to happen. And he's going to put it right. He's going to save David's dynasty, he thinks. And in the process, he's going to save Israel, he thinks. As Joab sees it, that means Absalom has to be brought back. So long as the heir to the throne is in exile, the kingdom isn't secure. This rift between the king and his son could even lead to civil war. They have to be reconciled, and Joab knows how to do it, he thinks. The trouble is, Joab is a grisly, obnoxious kind of man. He's more comfortable with violence than he is with words. We know that about him. And he seems to know that about himself. He doesn't have the kind of skill needed in this situation. What's needed, he thinks, is the ability to talk smoothly, to manipulate the king's emotions. And so, Joab hires a professional. Verse 2 calls her a wise woman. That should get our attention. Why? Because the same word was used to describe Jonadab in chapter 13. Remember, he was the one who came up with this plan that allowed Amnon to rape his sister Tamar. Chapter 13 described Jonadab as a very shrewd man. But it's the same word that's translated wise here. That connection with chapter 13 is not a good sign. As we'll see, this woman doesn't bring God's wisdom to bear in the situation. She brings some very human wisdom. And it doesn't help things at all. In any case, Job hires her and then he explains the part he wants her to play. In the middle of verse 2, he says, Pretend you are in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. Where did Joab get this idea from? Well, it seems likely he has been inspired here by the prophet Nathan. Back in chapter 12, after David went on a binge of sin, adultery, murder, and so on, after that, we were told in chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan delivered God's word to David. First of all, you may remember he used a little invented story to get David's attention. He told a story about a rich man stealing a sheep from a poor man. Apparently David thought it was an actual situation. And when David got angry about it, then Nathan clobbered him with God's word. You are the man. 
This is really about you, David. You stole a wife and then murdered her husband. Nathan's approach was very effective on that occasion. David responded with repentance. He humbled himself. I think that's probably the inspiration for what Joab does here. But there's one very significant difference. Nathan was delivering God's word. This woman, well, she's going to deliver Joab's word. He puts the words in her mouth, not God. What we hear from the woman is Joab's wisdom applied by the woman's skill. That's very different from God's wisdom applied by Nathan's skill. This is human wisdom. And it ends up trying to fix the problem while ignoring the real problem. As Joab sees it, the problem here is that Israel's heir to the throne is in exile. But Joab is ignoring the real problem. The real problem is Absalom's arrogance and selfish ambition and lack of repentance. Remember why he's in exile. When his sister Tamar was raped, he told her to keep quiet about it. He held her back from trying to pursue justice in the courts and with the king. Instead, Absalom took the king's authority on himself. He carefully laid a trap for his brother. And don't forget, by murdering his brother, Absalom became heir to the throne. Amnon had been the heir. So we should suspect from all this, Absalom already has his eyes on the throne. He may not be content to wait for David to die. The real problem here is Absalom's defiance of the king and his ugly ambition. Until that problem is dealt with, this upheaval and chaos in Israel is going to continue. But Joab's plan just ignores the real problem. Let's see how it plays out. As the king of Israel, David is responsible for justice in Israel. And Joab's wise woman comes to see David. She's playing the part of someone who's seeking justice. Verse 4 says, When the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honor. And she said, Help me, your majesty. The king asked her, what is troubling you? She said, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And then she proceeds to tell him her story, which is really Joab's story. She's a widow. She had two sons, but they got in a fight. Just the two of them in a field. And one killed the other. And now she says the clan, that's the wider family, wants to kill the surviving brother. Why would they want to do that? Well, the woman is implying they're greedy. They want her property. And now they have an excuse to get it, she says. If they kill her one remaining son under the pretense of justice, then the clan will inherit what belongs to the widow. 
It's a sad story. It's a sob story. She wants the king to commit himself to protecting her son. But you see here, initially, David is non-committal. He says in verse 8, go home and I will issue an order on your behalf. That's a bit too business-like for the woman. David doesn't seem to be moved the way he's supposed to be. So she keeps on pressing him. Until finally, David gives a clear answer at the end of verse 11. As surely as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Okay, part one of the plan has been successful. David has given a ruling on this made-up situation. Now it's time to make the connection with Absalom's situation. So she says in verse 13, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Is the woman right here? Is what she says accurate? What well, sounds persuasive? But in fact, the woman is blurring the truth to manipulate David. First of all, Absalom's situation is not like the situation in the story. As the woman told that her two sons went toe to toe in a fight. And one of them ended up dead. It was manslaughter. The death was not premeditated. It was the accidental outcome of an overheated disagreement. But we know that was not the case with Absalom. He allowed his hatred to brew and bubble away for two years. He made very careful, clear-headed plans. And then he had his brother killed in cold blood. It was murder. The woman also misrepresents the situation by claiming David is trying to hurt Israel here. He's depriving Israel of the heir to the throne. It's all designed to manipulate the king, to play on his emotions. And she goes even further. She misrepresents the character of God. Look again what she says about God in verse 14. Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. What about that statement? Well, it sounds right, doesn't it? Doesn't that strike a chord with us? Maybe it makes us think of the New Testament story of the prodigal son. Despite all of his rebellion, the father runs to welcome his son home. And what about David himself? Didn't God forgive him even after his sin? There's enough truth in what the woman says to make it persuasive. Be like God, David. Forgive and forget. Bring Absalom home. The woman's argument gets us emotionally, but it misrepresents the situation. It misrepresents God. It implies God forgives sin by just ignoring sin, 
But that's not what the Bible tells us. Yes, it tells us God's arms are open to the sinner. There's always a way back to him. But there has to be repentance. Sin has to be owned up to and forsaken. Think of the story of the prodigal son. We're told the son came to his senses. And he said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And in David's case, when he was confronted by Nathan, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. God does not take pleasure in the death of anyone. The woman is right in that much. His arms are open to forgive. But there has to be repentance. Without repentance, there can be no true healing. There can be no true reconciliation. But the woman leaves that bit out. And she leaves it out because Joab just wants Absalom back. He thinks that'll be enough to fix things. Forget justice, forget repentance, just bring the lad home. This is all being done with the best of intentions. But it's ignoring the real problem. And because of that, it's not going to fix anything. Job is relying on human wisdom. And human wisdom can't resolve problems that are caused by human sin. We saw that in our Bible reading earlier from 1 Corinthians. Human wisdom can't even identify our greatest problem. Never mind solve it. Human wisdom looks at the world and it looks at our human problems and it decides they must be due to a lack of education or maybe a lack of good role models. That would fix it. Or maybe it's a lack of funds or a lack of opportunity. And so human wisdom looks at Jesus on the cross and says, foolishness. God dying as a criminal? What's that even about? But the New Testament says, look at Jesus on the cross and you will see the wisdom of God. Only God sees our greatest problem. It's not a lack of education or a lack of good role models. Our greatest problem is our sin, our rebellion. Deep down, we want to be God. We make our decisions in life for our own honor and glory. And because we all do it, we end up trampling on each other. And our lives are filled with chaos. It's sin that separates us from God. That's what stops us finding peace. That's why the things that promise happiness turn to dead ends for us. That's why when we put our hope in people, people let us down. Only God is big enough to put our hope in. But we're cut off from him. That is our real problem. 
That's a problem only God can fix. The wise woman was right in that much. God did find a way to bring banished people home to him. But he didn't do it by ignoring the problem. He did it by sending his son to solve the problem. In God's wisdom, Jesus was punished for our sin. When we humble ourselves, owning up to our sin, and coming to him for mercy, then we find mercy. It's not cheap mercy. It's not a cheap fix. It's true, life-changing mercy. And it did not come about by God simply saying, you're all okay, really. Let's just have a hug and be friends. No, God's wisdom exposed the real problem and then paid the price to fix it. Peace comes when we accept God's assessment of the problem and we trust in his solution. We're sinners who need Jesus. Human wisdom says, just ignore sin. Let's just encourage people to be nice to each other. But that doesn't work. We have to face up to sin. We have to deal with the most significant problem. Then there's hope for solving all the other problems. But back in Israel, Absalom's rebellion is just being ignored. His ambition to take the king's place is being ignored. But we have to say the wise woman certainly earns her money. She plays on David's emotions with her story and with her religious language about God bringing back the banished. And then she butters David up in a very big way. In verse 17, she says he's like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. And when David asks whether Joab had anything to do with this, she admits it in verse 20. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. He did it to fix Israel's problems. David is being manipulated and he knows it. But it works. He calls Joab in in verse 21 and he says, Very well, I will do it. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. This is a victory for Joab. No doubt he believes things are fixed now. The family will be reunited. Israel's future will be stabilized. But it immediately becomes obvious this is a hollow victory. Trying to fix the problem while ignoring the real problem only brings superficial success. Yes, Joab has succeeded in making something happen. David has given in. But Absalom has shown no repentance. When he murdered his brother, he acted like he was the king. He hasn't renounced that rebellion. And so even though David has given in to the woman's manipulation, 
David is still uneasy about this. He's not at all convinced. We know that because of what we're told next in verse 23. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. David has been manipulated into going so far, but he's not comfortable. And so this falls way short of true reconciliation. We have this ridiculous stalemate going on. The king and his son are living in the same city, but they never see each other. The solutions we get by human wisdom aren't genuine solutions at all. They can't be. The situation never really gets sorted out that way. There might be a superficial fix, but nothing more than that. Absalom is back in Jerusalem, and he's going to dominate the next few chapters of this book. We get a proper introduction to him finally in verse 25. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar. And she became a beautiful woman. Absalom is Mr. Israel. He's described here as a beautiful man with a beautiful family. He's a flawless physical specimen. He has enough hair to make Russell Brand jealous. He's obviously very proud of his hair. Why else would he have it weighed? But this description of Absalom should make us uneasy. The reason it should make us uneasy is because we've seen this before or something very like it. Remember, if you can, when we first met Saul back in 1 Samuel, we were told he was as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel and he was a head taller than anyone else. When the most significant thing to be said about someone is how tall they are or how much hair they have, that's not a good sign. It makes us wonder about their character. It suggests there might not be much substance behind the style. Remember Saul, he proved to be self-obsessed and power-hungry. That was his character behind the handsome looks. So when Absalom gets a similar introduction, we should be uneasy. But you'll notice Israel seems to have no unease about Absalom. Verse 25 says, There was not a man so highly praised in Israel for his handsome appearance. He's got the looks, he's got the locks, 
And oh, look, there's his little daughter, Tamar, named after his sister. What a guy. The trouble is, behind the looks and the image, Absalom's character is rotten. He's a handsome charmer, but he'll do whatever it takes, whatever violence and scheming is needed to get what he wants. And what he wants is the throne of Israel. The first step in that direction is to get himself reinstated at the palace. And look again how Mr. Israel goes about that. Verse 28. Absalom lived for two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king. But Joab refused to come to him, so he sent him a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, look, Joab's field is next to mine. He has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, look, I sent word to you and said, come here so that I can send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. After two years, Absalom is tired of posing for the local tabloids. He hasn't still had an invite to the palace. And Joab refuses to return his calls. Apparently, Joab feels this situation is enough. He probably thinks he's pushed David as far as he can. But Absalom isn't going to be fobbed off. He does what it takes to get Joab's attention. And he is defiant and brazen about the whole thing. You didn't call me back, Joab. I had to burn down your farm. And this ultimatum he gives to the king, if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. That's just forcing the issue. He already knows his life is safe. David has done nothing for two years. It's a pretty safe bet he's not going to execute Absalom now. But this is a good way to manipulate David. And the handsome charmer gets his way. He gets his summons to the palace. And he bows and scrapes in front of the king. But it's all just for the cameras, as we'll see next week. And he gets a reward of a kiss from the king. That's a formal sign Absalom is now reinstated in the royal family. As it's presented here, it's all very official, all very ceremonial. No emotion, no tears, no embrace. In fact, apparently, they don't even say anything to one another. David has allowed himself to be manipulated into this. 
Of course, that's no excuse for David. But all the signs are he's doing this reluctantly. But what a comeback for Absalom. He's literally got away with murder. He's back in the palace. His reputation is sky high. People are even interested in how much his hair weighs. They love him that much. And from Joab's point of view, this is a win. He's achieved what he set out to achieve. The heir is back. Surely the kingdom is going to be safe. Surely the house of David is going to prosper. The trouble is, this is all the result of human wisdom. And time will show it hasn't fixed anything. It's only made things worse. Joab was trying to strengthen the house of David. But he's just invited a time bomb into the house. That's what Absalom is. He's a time bomb of defiant, selfish ambition. And next week, his ambition for the throne will explode. Joab's success has opened the door for even bigger problems in Israel. And the lesson for us from this is that we need God's wisdom. Human wisdom is never enough. Human solutions can never solve the real problems. Human solutions can't bring us peace with God or peace in our hearts or peace with one another. The very most that human wisdom can do is paper over the cracks for a while. King David had God's Old Testament law. He could have turned to that wisdom from God. It would have guided him in his situation. But you and I have even more. The New Testament says, Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Only Jesus can deal with our deepest problems. Only Jesus can meet our deepest needs. He can deal with our sin and reconcile us to God. That is our only way to genuine peace. So let's not settle for anything less in our lives. Whatever the situation is we're facing, if God has the wisdom that's needed for our salvation, surely he has the wisdom that's needed for everything else too. So let's rely on God's wisdom. And let's give him glory for his wisdom. We're going to do that as we sing together. To God be the glory. Great things he has done.